Well, please open your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And if you would, follow along in your copy of God's Word. As I read verse 14 of chapter 1 and then the entirety of chapter 2. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Speaking of the angels. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he did, not subject to, he, he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man, that you remember him? Or the son of man, that you are concerned about him? You have made him a, for a little while lower than the angels." You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me, since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was, has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's once again seek God's face as we come to his word this evening. 
Father in heaven, we ask that you would be gracious to us and you would overcome all of our weakness. You would cleanse us of all of our sins. That as we come to hear, as I come to handle your holy word, we would do nothing to defile it, nothing to dishonor you in the hearing of it or in the proclaiming of it. And that is only possible if you, by your spirit, come and help both preacher and hearer alike. Help us, we pray, in the name of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as was mentioned in the past, or, the, or last week, when I began uh, what I thought was going to be just one message, uh, a sermon on this topic of man. What is man? And I took that a question, what is man, and uh, sought to open it up in, in the various places that it was found. Now again, let me just remind you, this sermon is not a sermon that's going to be directly aimed at how to live right before God, but it's going to be aimed at how to think rightly, how to understand the truth and apply that truth, that we might know that truth, and that hopefully then we will be able to apply it in our daily lives and especially in many of the cultural conversations that are going on in our world today. There are a number of very important issues which need to be addressed from God's Word and which we as God's people need to be able to speak to. And we need to be able to speak to them from a platform of truth, not a platform of, of personal opinion, not a platform of just personal passion, but a platform of truth. Truth as it's found in the Word of God, truth as it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what we need to be able to do these are the kinds of voices that are needed. Now, I have not mentioned specific issues because I don't want, in, at this point in time, to distract anybody by the particular issues. I'm just trying to lay down some foundation blocks upon which we will hope to build in the future as sermons are preached on some of these relevant topics. So I asked last week, as we began our uh, looking at this question, what is man, to just that very question, what does it mean to be human? And we looked at Psalm 8 and verse 4, a context in which we, the psalmist David is considering the cosmos, the night sky, and God's glory seen in it, and he asks the question in that context, what is man? And his answer is that man is small and insignificant. And that leads to some astonishment on his behalf that God would care for him, someone so small and insignificant. And in particular, now he's thinking about himself, but he's talking about Adam and mankind from Adam. Psalm 144, 3 through 4 was the second place we saw this question. And again, a context, this time considering God's merciful character, David, again, as the writer, asks the question, what is man? The answer there is that man is weak and transient and fleeting. And again, to his astonishment, David, this time actually thinking more specifically about himself and not just Adam, but more specifically about himself, why God is concerned to bless him so. And we saw the next place where this question appeared was in Job chapter 7, verses 17 to 18. And here Job is uh, wrestling with and considering the pain and affliction that he is under. 
And he asks this question in that context. What is man? His answer is that man is inconsequential. Man is mortal. And here, it's not so much amazement, but it's agony. For why should a God who is so great and a God who is so glorious be so concerned about such an insignificant creature like himself that he would scrutinize his every move, as it were, and address him and bring pain and suffering into his life? Eliphaz, as well, in the book of Job, asked this question, this time in Job chapter 15, verses 14 to 16, Eliphaz is considering the purity of God and the righteousness of God as he considers Job's circumstances. And he asks the question, what is man? And his response is a little more pointed, a little more uh, painful, if you will, when he says man is impure, man is unrighteous, man is detestable, man is corrupt, man is full of iniquity, and man is mortal, he is prone to die. And Eliphaz's judgment in light of that is that Job must be a very great sinner. Now, his judgment is wrong, but the point is that it's in a context in which he's seeing something of God's righteous judgment, and he's seeing sinful men, and he's saying this is interesting. Why would God be concerned with men in this way? And so I compiled the picture. What is man from these questions? Man is a small and insignificant creature in comparison to the universe, a weak and fleeting human, an inconsequential mortal. And men, since Adam's fall, have been impure, unrighteous, detestable, corrupt, iniquitous, and prone to die, that is, mortal. And yet, in each of these contexts, we've been set, this question has been set over against something of the character of God. And so we don't just ask the question, what is man? But we ask the question, well, who is this God and what does he do? And it's this God who is a majestic God who sees and provides. It's a merciful God who knows and regards his creatures. He is a mysterious God who scrutinizes and afflicts, and he is a moral God who judges and punishes. And that's a fairly good picture as we come to ask this question, what is man, and in particular in this world, under this particular God? So the second question then arises from that is, why is man so special? Why is it that, man, that God is so concerned about man? And gives him such care, and also is so concerned about man that he gives him such scrutiny. Well, God cares for him because of the unique place he has given him in his creation. He gave special intention and attention. He gave, unique, he gave him a unique identity. And here's where we focus some of our attention, was the reality that man is made the image of God. He is made in likeness to God. Male and female, God created them that way. Psalm 8 is where we saw this, reflecting back on Genesis chapter 1. And even from that time on, all mankind, whether saved or unsaved, all mankind are image bearers of God. That means that man is to portray God's character to the moral universe. He is a blueprint, a model, or a representation, if you will, of this God. 
And man is a physical representation of an invisible God in the world. And he is to display God's glory. And I did a little extra reading this week and found some, some, some very helpful, very powerful, very uh, instructive comments, and it was Bavink who made the comment that man in his entire humanity is God's image. Now, our bodies are not comparable to something in God because he has no body. But you can't be an image bearer without a body. You can't display to a world, a universe, who this God is in a physical way unless you have a body to do that in. This is man's glory. This is man's honor, as the psalmist put it. To be this representation, to be this image bearer of God in our souls and in our spirits, whether it's our thoughts, our affections, our emotions, our will, our conscience, all of which are worked out in the way we live in this world, in our bodies, in all the activities of life. We are to image, portray, display, make known this God. This is our glory and our honor. And we're given on top of that a special position from Adam onwards of being the vice regent, the, the, the vice governor of, under God in ruling over his creation. But the problem is that man has fallen, as we saw again last week. And as I saw those passages in, in Job, he paints man in this, in this light. Man has rebelled against God. And so man is not living up to what God made him to be. Man is not doing what God has intended him to do and designed him to do. We do not show forth his glory. As a matter of fact, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're not being what God has called us to be and doing what God has called us to do. We are all fallen. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. And there is none in and of themselves who accurately reflects the nature of God. And so this is what we've seen so far. John Brown, summarizing this point, says, We therefore consider these words as expressive of this idea. It is amazing that amid the number and the magnificence of the divine works, man, human nature, degraded human nature, should be so honored as to be an image bearer. So then we come to the third point here, which I haven't addressed yet. The third point, what is the solution for man's problem? I said there were five, five passages. I've covered four of them. And here's the fifth, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. So if you open your Bible again, if you, or if you have it still open, Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 10. And I'll use the same basic three points, the context, the question, the answer, and then something of the conclusion or a response. The context in Hebrews chapter 2 is that the writer of Hebrews is addressing and considering Christ's superiority to the angels. That's what he's been addressing in chapter 1. 
He's addressing, though, here in this chapter, a potential problem, a potential objection. If this one who is the Savior, if this one who is the Son of God is is to be superior to angels, how can he be so if he became a man and if he suffered and died? Now, just so you know, uh, three books that have been extremely helpful as I've come to this, and I encourage you to, to go and read further on this. John Brown's commentary on Hebrews. Stuart Elliott's little commentary on Hebrews. I wish somebody had told me about Hebrews or something along those lines is the title. Excellent little book. And I didn't check to see if any of these were in the bookstore. But, uh, and then the third one is the one that's not in the bookstore yet, and that's Dr. Bob's book, which I have an electronic copy of so I could read from. So this is the context to who this, this, this son of God who is greater than the angels. And it's in that context that the writer asks the question, what is man? Now, I'm not sure. I'm sure that many of you had, had thought of this passage in Hebrews chapter 2. It's the fifth place where the question appears. It's kind of a cheater passage, though, because he's quoting Psalm 8, which we've already looked at. But he's going to do something somewhat interesting from this. So in this context, verse 6, he asks the question, what is man? And again, it's instructive for us to consider this question. So what's the answer to the question? Well, the answer to the question has, is twofold. The first part of the answer is this. It's Adam and his descendants. It's Adam and mankind who are supposed to be ruling over the inhabited earth. Notice verse 5. In introducing the psalm, he says in verse 5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Men and not angels are supposed to be in a position of rule as God's vice regents or vice governors, as we've already seen. And the writer says, God didn't give this place to angels. Again, referring back, he's skipping over verses 1 to 4, actually, I believe going back to verse 14 of chapter 1 as he begins his statement in verse 5. He's talking about these ministering spirits. And the writer of Hebrews states that these angels are not to rule, but he implies that somebody else should be ruling. John Brown put it this way, the world to come, or excuse me, in looking at this, the world to come here is, is speaking about the kingdom of Messiah. And I can't go into all the details of that, but I believe that that's the right way to understand this. When he talks about the world to come, he's not talking about just heaven or just the new heavens and the new earth, but he's talking about all that was instituted by the Messiah and under the reign of the Messiah. As John Brown says, the world to come concerning which we are speaking, it is generally the order of things introduced by the Messiah. So man, during this time of the Messiah is supposed to be reigning. Things are supposed to be in subjection to him. And then he quotes Psalm 8 to support his point. Dr. Bob says that the reason he quotes this is to show that God's original, that this is God's original plan for man. That man was supposed to be reigning, as he says. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. But the last part of verse 8 is the problem. Notice the rub. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. And if you have the New American Standard, you notice that the hymns, all of the hymns, the uh, pronouns there are small case. 
small lowercase h. So it's not speaking of Jesus. And I believe that's an accurate translation. He's not yet speaking of Christ. He's still speaking of men. Men aren't filling their role of having rule over all things in this age. Things are not subject to him. Is that not obvious in our present culture? Viruses are not subject to man. Societies and nations are not being ruled very well. Stuart Olliott summarized it this way, thinking ahead of what's coming. He says, the fact is, however, that we do not yet see man in that position, that everything is subject to him. For example, death terrifies him. Sin enslaves him. And the devil oppresses him. Dr. Bob put it this way, when Adam, the first representative man, tried to extend his dominion beyond the boundaries set by Jehovah, he fell into sin. Among other punishments visited on him and his descendants was a very real loss of authority. No longer would every creature obey his voice, nor would the earth yield its produce with ease. Rather, the creation would rebel against him as he had rebelled against the Lord. Man fell from his place of glory and honor when he sinned. So the first part of the answer is, what is man? Well, all that we've already seen about who man is. And especially man in his fallen condition. Not being all that God wanted him to be and designed him to be. And that creating chaos rather than order in the world. But there's a second part to the answer, and I'm sure you've already anticipated this because I read the passage. Notice with me verse 9, the second part of the answer. What is man? And the answer simply is Jesus Christ. The glorious Son of God described in chapter 1 is what man ought to be and enables man to be what we were designed to be. But we do not see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The writer of Hebrews states it plainly. The answer to the question is Jesus Christ. The phrase that he has made a little while lower than the angels or made a little lower than the angels speaks of the incarnation of Jesus, of his becoming a man. What is man? Well, he is seen in his perfect form, in his perfect display when Jesus took to himself flesh and blood like the rest of the children of God, verse 17, and dwelt among men. When he was made like unto his brethren in all things, and he himself was tempted in that which he suffered. And yet, as we heard from Hebrews chapter 7, that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He did not sin. There was no sin found in his mouth. There was no sin found in his heart. There was no sin found in him. He was all that man was supposed to be. He was the perfect man, and he is the fulfillment of what David prophesied or spoke of in Psalm 8. The one who was made for a little while lower than the angels. 
But there's more because this one who was made a little lower than the angels, this Jesus, was, has also been crowned with glory and honor. And the writer says we don't see him any longer as one who is human in being in his humiliation because he's now been crowned with glory and honor. And so he has been exalted to the right hand of God. He has been raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven. And it says in verse 9, because of his suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. Or as I believe it was Pastor Donnelly or it may have been Pastor Martin who first used the phrase that his cross was the path to his crown. It was because he suffered that he now reigns. And everything is now subject unto him. He has achieved that posture, that place where he now rules over all things and everything has been subject to him. The one thing accepted is God himself, 1 Corinthians 15, 27. So Jesus fulfilled where Adam failed. The last Adam now reigns in glory and honor, and he has been restored to the glory which he had with the Father before the foundation of the world, where the first Adam fell short of God's glory. And so a real man, a true man, a glorified man, the man Jesus Christ sits in God's right, at God's right hand, crowned with glory and honor. Now, we need to be careful and recognize that that doesn't mean that he wasn't glorious when he came. For when he dwelt among us, it, John says, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He was glorious. And when they crucified him, they crucified the Lord of glory. But he now has the full messianic, Reign and the glory that goes with it. He is now no longer having that glory veiled in flesh, but now fully displayed there to all the angelic beings in heaven. And what's the response? Well, it should be one of amazement. This is, this is by far the most remarkable, the most wonderful expression of God's care for mankind. Time and time again, what is man that you think on him or the son of man that you take care of him or visit him? The psalmist asks, Job asks, why do you care? Oh, but it's not just the kindness that God showed to Adam in the way that he created him in the garden that he gave to him and the way he provided for him even after he fell. And it's not all the blessings that he gave to David to care for him as his chosen king and his people under his reign. But the greatest display of God's concern for mankind and his love for mankind was when he sent his son, Emmanuel, to dwell among us. And he himself came that he might care for us. He took our frame, as it were. He took flesh and blood in the likeness of fallen human flesh, not fallen in itself and in himself. 
He humbled himself and was made a little lower for a while or for a little while lower than the angels whom he had created. Philip Edgecombe Hughes says in his commentary, the incarnation of the Son of God is the great and ultimate proof of the importance of man. If you ever wondered, is man different than the animals? Yes. How do you know? Because God became a man and not a dog. But then we need to remember what Jesus did. Because he didn't just come as Emmanuel and dwell among us and then go off and leave us here in our state to, to try to follow along after him and somehow maybe catch on to his train and, and make it up where he got. The place that he, he attained. It says that in Hebrews chapter 2, as we looked at that, that by God's grace, Jesus tasted, he underwent, he experienced death for each and every one of those for whom he came to save. He tasted, he experienced, he died for them. You see, it wasn't just that he came among us to show I care. He came among us to die for us. And so attached was he with us and so familiar was he with us that he calls us brethren and he's not, a, not ashamed to call us brethren. He has reconciled us to God through his death. He rendered powerless the devil in all of his power to, to cause anxiety and fear because of death. He delivered us from the bondage of the fear of death through his own death. And as was said earlier, he became a merciful high priest in things pertaining to God, verse 17, in order to make propitiation, that is to satisfy the wrath of God against our sins as fallen, warped, marred image bearers, we deserved God's wrath. He took that for us by becoming sin for us, bearing it for us, the creator and owner, owner of all things suffered in order, brethren, listen to this, to bring many sons to glory. In other words, so that we could be what God designed us to be for his glory. We are created to display his glory. We have fallen far short of that glory because we fell in Adam and then we added all of our own sins on top of that. And we have marred this image. We have defamed our God by the way that we live. Every time we sin, we are a caricature of the true and living God who made us for His glory. And Jesus came and ascended and is crowned with glory and honor that he might bring many, that is, us, his brethren, to glory, that we might display that glory as we ought. He is renewing us in who are new men after the image of the one who created us. He is conforming us to the image of Christ. 
Again, it is not, according to one commentator, is not an egocentric self-approval that the worth of man finds expression. Did you hear that? It's not an egocentric self-approval that the worth of man finds expression, but in this status as God's creature and his constitution as the divine image. His true human dignity, fatally and universally marred by sin, is restored in Christ. So being one with Christ, Hughes goes on to say, his redeemed share in the glory of his reign. And everything is placed in subjection under his feet so that in Christ the dominion for which man was originally created is everlastingly established. The perfection of the Son's sacrifice and the indefectibility, that is, that which it, it, it can't be changed, it can't be eroded, of his rule is guaranteed, is the guarantee, the full fulfillment of the destiny of mankind in him, that is, in Christ. Now, i got to stop and make application right there before I've, I run out of all kinds of possible time limits. I was reading in The Glory of Christ by John Owen, and he said this, the design of this discourse, that is, his speaking on the glory of Christ, is no more but that when by faith we have attained a view of the glory of Christ, in our contemplations on his person, we should not pass over it as a notion of truth which we assent unto, namely that he is thus glorious in himself, but endeavor to affect our hearts with it. Let me stop. That's Owenese, and it's lovely Owenese. <laughs> He says, when you read something like Hebrews chapter 2 and you see something of Jesus Christ in his glory, it's not just a mental idea that you say, okay, I saw that, that's nice. He says, contemplate it, think upon it till it gets a hold of your heart, changes your heart, warms your affections, and draws you up to praise him. Carlson E's over Owen. Owen said it better, but... I'll say it so we can understand it. Do not neglect so great a Savior. Do not neglect so great a Savior who has such a great, a great cost accomplished so great a salvation. So what do we do with all this? Quickly. First thing, as you think about this, what is man? You think about these big blocks. Image bearer. Fallen short of God's glory. Glory restored in Jesus Christ as he sits at God's right hand. What do you do with that? First of all, look at yourself. What do you see? Do you see a self-image you're concerned about? Or a divine image bearer? Are you trying to make or remake yourself into something? Trying to have some persona or some position? Or when you look at yourself, do you say, not made in China, made by God. Made for his glory, made to display his glory, dignified and honored because he has been so kind as to make me his image. 
How do you define yourself? Do you define yourself based on your accomplishments, based on your activities, based on your relationships, based on your experiences, based on your preferences, based on your limitations, or based on your identity as God has created you? Because he wove you together in your mother's womb just the way he wanted you at this time to display his glory in this setting at this time in his history. And then I ask, as you look at yourself, how accurately do you represent the God who made you? Are you a glory thief? Striving to take glory to yourself? When you're made to give glory to God and live for his glory? Are you denying God the glory that is due him because you're not giving yourself to truly striving to display him more accurately, more fully, more clearly by the grace of God and by the help of the Spirit? Do your actions, words, and thoughts all represent God's righteousness, holiness, and truth? Do you see yourself as fallen and having fallen short of God's glory? Do you see every sin as that misrepresentation of God? Christian, we have been bought with a price. We are to glorify God with our bodies and in our bodies. Turn from every sin because it is a marring of the image of God. And turn to Jesus Christ. Imitate your heavenly Father, especially as he is displayed in his Son, Jesus Christ. We didn't get to chapter 2, verse 6. But to walk as Jesus walked in 1 John chapter 2, that is. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, we're to walk as Jesus walked. You know, hearing a, a question a lot lately, um, you know, whenever a baby's born, you knew this was coming, didn't you? Whenever a baby's born, there's always a question, who does he look like? Who does she look like? And you know what my standard answer is? I don't know. She looks like Ava. She looks like Joya. He looks like, you know, it, I, I don't know. And that's okay, because they're still small and they're changing and growing, right? But what a terrible thing for a Christian to have somebody look at you and say, who do you look like? And the question to me, you know, I don't know. What an awful thing for one who has been bought with such a price to not be able to say, I'm striving to imit imitate Christ. I'm striving to image my Father who is in heaven. We are to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then that he follows, Paul follows in Ephesians chapter 5 with a list of ethical behaviors that manifest God-like love and God's glory. Spend some time looking upon the face of your Savior. For it's looking upon him and looking upon his glory that we are changed from glory to glory. We are made in his image. And then very briefly, after you've looked inside, after you've looked inside, look around. 
What do you see? Go ahead, look around. You see, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say shake the hand person next to you and sing a little song, aren't we wonderful? You know, we're all family of God. That's not my point. But you look around. What do you see? Do you see image bearers? That's who's sitting next to you. That's who's sitting across from you. That's who you're working with. That's who's on the bus next to you. That's who's living in the houses next to you. Image bearers. Many of them marred and lost and and confused. Why? Because they don't know there's a solution to their problem. They don't know there's one who has made it to glory, who's crowned with glory and honor, and so they're flailing around trying to find some ism for which to live. When we see them flailing around and destroying themselves and destroying one another, let's recognize it and let's sympathize, let's grieve. That image bearers, God has made for his own glory, are just lost. Sympathize with them. These natively weak, small, insignificant, short-lived, lost individuals, they need hope. They are without God. They are hopeless in this world. Let's give them hope. Where is that hope found? We saw it, didn't we? We saw it in Hebrews chapter 2. That hope is found in Jesus Christ. Oh, these truths that I've set forth have so many applications. They apply to how we view death. They apply to burial versus cremation. Those Sunday school classes we had some time ago, they, have, they apply with regard to marriage because the image bearers are male and female. They are regard to identity. Is it one's sexuality or one's created nature? They, were, they, they have to do with significance. What makes us, perp- what gives us purpose They have to do with the whole issue of racism. Brethren, these are foundational truths which we need to lay hold of. And any answer to any of the problems that we face as humans that denies, neglects, or ignores any of these foundational truths is faulty and may actually be dishonest or wicked. Let us magnify, brethren, especially the God of mercy and grace. Praise God for his son who was for a little while made lower than the angels, but now is crowned with glory and honor and is bringing many sons to glory. If you sit here without Christ and without hope in the world, if you're separate from God, then Christ Jesus is your answer. You may be a good kid, you may be a good... Man, you may be a good woman, but the fact of the matter is, without Christ, you are a marred image bearer, and you are denying your created identity and purpose. You are defaming the God who made you. Repent and go to Christ, who sits in glory. Go to Christ for that forgiveness that you need that you might have that forgiveness that you need. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, be gracious to write your word upon our hearts, guide and direct us by the truth. We plead in Jesus' name. Amen.